thanks, Sam and the musicians, for leading us in our service so far. And please do keep Genesis chapter 4 open as we spend this time to look at it together. We're going to be finishing Genesis this morning, as Sam said. So then look ahead at 1 Timothy, where we're going to apply some of the principles we've been learning about in Genesis. So it's been a joy uh, to look at it, but sadly we are leaving it prematurely, um, but hopefully um, it will be wrap up the first book of Genesis this morning to help us see what it says. Um, but before we dive in, let's pray for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that you have given us your spirit to help us understand it and to apply it. I pray you'd give us soft hearts, ready to listen and obey your voice this morning. Amen. So back in September 1939, well, the people then were shocked to hear Neville Chamberlain's voice as he came over the radio broadcast announcing the start of the Second World War. With just a few words, the course of history was changed forever, and people's lives were changed. Over time, that generation they have to become used to raising children, forgetting, going to work, carrying on their lives in the midst of the blitz, evacuation, rationing, conscription, and so much more. It truly was a very different world. Well, so too for Genesis chapter 4, where we're going to see Adam and Eve and their descendants adjusting to a new life outside of Eden. Because after God's broadcast... In Genesis chapter 3, well, they too found themselves living in a very different world. One in which they no longer walked with God in the garden, but instead they dealt with the pain of broken relationships, of difficult labors. A perfect world now distorted because of our sin and God's curse. But as Sam read through the chapter... You might have noticed that, surprisingly, there's still a lot of progress. We've just read about kids being born, livestock being tended, fields being cultivated, cities being founded, instruments being made, and bronze and iron tools being made. Humans are continuing to multiply, to spread, to work, to subdue the earth, to do all that God made us for. But for all that progress we also see in this passage that the world is tainted by sin. The curse has affected every aspect of human life in more and more painful ways. As alongside the progress, we read of a world of lies, deceit, violence, boasting, revenge, and even murder. The curses of Genesis 3, on display, as humans live in a world in which they've rejected God's good rule. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, that's one of the major problems of life outside of Eden, is that humans no longer walk in right relationship with God, and consequently, we no longer live harmoniously together. And to help us kind of see that, we're going to dive into the text. So let's firstly turn our attention to verses 1 to 16 to see the murderous 
enmity of the offspring of Eve. But right away, as you read these verses, in verse 1, we see a glimmer of hope. As Eve gives birth, birth to their firstborn son, Cain, the man she produced with the Lord's help. And then just after, in verse 2, well, we meet Cain's younger brother, Abel, too. Adam and Eve, they're multiplying, and their kids are also subduing. As Abel was a keeper of sheep, verse 2, and Cain a worker of the ground. They're cultivating the earth, they're tending to the world, they're producing food for us to eat and enjoy. So initially, it might seem, well, life outside of Eden isn't actually that bad. It's going not too badly, but something is obviously not quite right, verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Whilst both these brothers bring their respective offerings of what they've produced, for some reason Abel's is accepted, but Cain's is rejected. Now, some people make much of the nature of their offerings to try and explain this. Is animal sacrifice better than kind of giving fruit? Well, the Israelites' first reading Genesis should have known that this couldn't be the case because they just received the law from Moses that allowed for both animal and grain offerings. Or others think maybe the difference is Abel gave his best, but Cain his worst. Perhaps Abel brought a kind of juicy sirloin steak to the Lord, whereas Cain brought a kind of handful of rotten and moldy apples. Well, there is something to be said for that. If you just look back at Abel's offering, well, it's underlined as being the best. It's the firstborn of the flock. He brings the juiciest, the fattiest sections to the Lord. But, but we aren't really told if Cain's is bad or not. Either way, Hebrews 11 tells us what the fundamental difference between their offerings was. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4 says, By faith, Abel offered a more, a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Hebrews 11 is clear that it's, what, it's faith that pleases God. It's not about just turning up and thinking any old offering will do, but Abel gave his absolute best because he had faith in the Lord. Whereas Cain, well, he brought an offering to God, but he doesn't really have faith in him. He doesn't trust him the way Abel does. In fact, he wants to relate to God on his terms, not God's terms. Isn't that just how we humans often think? We imagine that if we offered anything to God at all, well, he'd just be happy to accept it. He'd just be thankful we remembered him and even thought to give anything to him. But it's a bit like if you and I went to a restaurant where we'd expect the waiter to bring us the meal we ordered, not just whatever they had too much of left over in the kitchen. Well, so too with God. He doesn't expect our leftovers, but he's told us how to worship him. But because of our sinfulness... When, when often when we approach God today, 
humans all over the world, where we can so easily try to do it our way. We invent systems, rituals, religions to try and please God without really trusting him or having faith in him. The people reading Genesis would have known that all too well. They just had the tabernacle built for them. It was a place where they could enter into God's presence. But if they did so, ignoring God's commands, and they didn't make the right sacrifice, well, that wasn't going to please God. In fact, that was going to anger him. They had this special access to worship God, but they had to do it God's way, not theirs. And so too for all people on earth today, as Jesus tells us how we approach God, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way we worship God in a way that pleases him. And that angers people today, doesn't it? People will say, how can you be so exclusive? How could you say something like that? Shouldn't God care about anyone? If they bring something that they think is pleasing to God, shouldn't they accept it all? Well, just like us today, it also angered Cain, verse 5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. He's angry at his brother by the fact that he's commended by God, whilst God doesn't seem to regard his offer. But whilst God doesn't want Cain's empty, ritualistic offering, graciously, he still offers Cain a way back. Verse 6, where it says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. See, God's not writing Cain off. He still has time to realize the error of his ways and to come back to God. But did you notice with this gracious offer also comes a warning? Verse 7, And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin is crouching at the door. And given that last week we saw in chapter 3 that it was so clearly about how sin entered the world, well, remarkably, this is actually the first time the word is used in the Bible. And it's described like a wild animal. It's like the lion stalking its prey, waiting and ready to pounce. And sin's desire, we see, is contrary to us. This isn't some kind of enjoyable beast we want to play with. It can't be tamed. We don't want to dabble with this, but it wants to devour us. Sin is a beast waiting to devour. And just notice the difference between chapters 3 and 4. Adam and Eve, well, they were tempted by a snake external to them, something outside of them, whereas now Cain has an internal threat, the sin inside him that seeks to devour him. 
which leaves us with the question, what will Cain do? Will he see the error of his ways? Or will he stay angry and be devoured by sin? Well, verse 8. Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. It's disturbingly quick. It only took one conversation with his brother later that he lures him out into the fields and his anger spills over and he kills Abel, his own brother. Verse 8 shows us the danger of dabbling in sin. Sin is crouching behind every door. So the unchecked anger in Cain's heart, well, it didn't take long for it to lead to full-blown murder. And the unchecked and unrepentant sin in our hearts, well, that can't be controlled. It's a wild beast crouching at the door that will bubble over just like Cain. And as God said in Genesis chapter 3, the offspring of the serpent is at enmity with the offspring of the promise. So much so that it only took to the second ever generation that we have the world's first murder. And that was the murder of someone's own brother. Abel was killed purely because he was devoted to God and Cain couldn't bear to see it. 1 John chapter 3 says this, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. Abel's murder shows us just how serious this enmity has become. The world which chooses to walk away from God will oppose God's people. So it means if you're known as following Jesus today, well, 1 John says, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Now, as I say this this morning, I realize that in Edinburgh, we probably haven't seen our brothers try and kill us yet. But whilst we do receive some snide remarks and some lighter persecution, actually for many of our brothers and sisters across the world, this is a real and present threat. Some estimates suggest that the 20th century saw over double the number of Christian martyrs as the previous 19 centuries combined. Or as we heard about at our last prayer meeting, Christians in Eritrea are routinely persecuted, where thousands of believers are imprisoned and many have been killed, where those in power encourage neighbors, family, and friends to spy on each other to expose those who believe in Jesus. There, Christians are at risk, just like Abel, of being lured out by their family and friends simply because they've chosen to live for God in a world outside of Eden. And just like his parents before him, 
Well, Cain tries to hide his sin. And we saw, didn't we, a couple weeks ago, that Adam and Eve, well, they played two games. They played hide-and-seek, and they played the blame game to try and get rid of their sin. Well, here we see that Cain is playing dumb. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain lies. He tries to distance himself from what he's just done. It's a bit like imagining the vase you just broke. You know it's going to cause an issue with your parents, so you hide it. You throw it in the bin, you wrap it up, you try and conceal it, you claim you've never seen it, just because you don't want the blame to come back round to you. But the problem is that whilst it might work with the vase occasionally, we can't hide our sin forever. For Cain, verse 10, Abel's blood was crying out from the ground. It was so much so that God could hear it condemning Cain. And God can't hear Abel's blood and do nothing about it. He can't listen to the cries of his people and ignore it. Where he sees sin, he must punish it. So therefore, Cain is cursed by God for his sin. Verse 11 says, And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So what did God's curse mean for Cain? Well, it meant that he would no longer even be able to use the ground to grow food. It would no longer give it, him its strength. And that he would no longer be able to settle, but he'd be destined to a life of wandering. And Cain sees that this punishment is so bad, well, it's more than he could ever bear, verse 13. But it's in that that we see God's overwhelming graciousness to Cain that despite the sheer scale of his sin, the fact he killed his own brother, well, God is still kind to him. The first murderer on earth, well, now he's worried what others might do to him. The predator has become the prey. But in God's kindness, verse 15, the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. And what what did that mark show? Well, it showed that there would be vengeance if anyone attacks Cain. A gracious God protects vengeful Cain from vengeance himself. So what does Cain and Abel have to tell us today? Well, the first ever siblings show us just how bad the enmity between Eve's offspring and the serpent's offspring will be. The joy of harmonious relationships has definitely been left behind in Eden, and the problem is, is this is just the start. In the rest of the chapter, we're going to see two places where humans hope in to try and deal with this problem, to try and deal with the problem of sin and disharmony, either in human progress or in God himself. And to help us see these, let's turn our attention to verses 17 to 24, 
where we see the sinful progress of the offspring of Cain. And just like in verse 1, well, this section is begun by another birth. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And we then get a short genealogy giving us the first seven generations of Cain's line. And in this genealogy, we're going to see two progressions. Firstly, the progress of human society. Just look with me at Lamech's impressive sons in verses 20 to 22. And don't they sound a bit like that family that sends you their yearly updates along with their Christmas card? It's only been a year, yet they seem to have done so much, achieved so much, and just outperform you in every manner of life every year. Verse 20, Jabal develops camping gear and animal husbandry. Verse 21, Jubal develops musical instruments. Verse 22, Tubal Cain begins to forge bronze and iron tools. It's wonderful. Humanity is learning new and important skills to help us subdue the earth, to help us enjoy God's good creation. But aside from the progress of human society, we also see the progress of human sin. Verse 19, And Lamech took two wives. God's good pattern for marriage is outlined in Genesis chapter 2. Well, that was already being undermined in Genesis 4. And Lamech doesn't just stop there. As whilst his son is making the lyre and the pipe, well, Lamech decides to sing a song of violence and vengeance. He proudly boasts to his two wives, making sure that they listen and threatening them and anyone else who would hear it about how he killed a man. He sings of how he kills this young man, or even perhaps a boy, just for striking him. And he promises to give a 77-fold return to anyone that dare approach him. It's a disgusting song in a horrid situation which demonstrates just how bad sin has become. That despite all the wonder of human progress, well, it's all tainted by sin, crouching behind every door. And yet the problem is that we as humans, well, we're often so convinced that our progress will deal with the problems of our society. That, if we, that we can use what we do and what we make to solve the problems of our world and bring us back into paradise. Take the internet. It promised to herald in a new age, one where we'd be brought closer together than ever before, a place where we could solve all the problems of our world. Yet, whilst it is a wonderful tool, it does have some extremely good uses for our world. It is far from the perfect solution it was meant to be. Just go and read some comments on forums or a social media or a video post, and you'll quickly see the vitriol which is brought to the surface. It's now impossible to get away and hide from the abuse hurled at one another. We live in a society where people say they feel more isolated than ever before, and the worst and most depraved sinful desires of our hearts are catered for with an ever-increasing ease. 
Now the best and worst of humanity is only ever a click away. Sin is crouching at the door, turning all human progress to our sinful desires. Genesis is so brutally realistic, isn't it? It doesn't leave us much room to naively put our trust in anything humans do or make. Every movement, every invention, every leader, well, all of it, while they raise our hopes, they will ultimately dash them. Whilst they might achieve some success, they cannot deal ultimately with the big problems of our world and our most desperate needs. None of Cain's offspring can put right what Cain put wrong. None of their efforts can make them accepted by God. None of them can keep sin at bay. So if we can't hope in human progress, well then where can we find real hope in a broken world? Was Abel's death really the end of the story? Well, it might feel like it, might not. We've been going through chapter 4. It's only 26 verses long. We've already got to verse 24, and it just seems to be a steady decline further and further into sin. But as we'll see in our last point in verses 25 to 26, that whilst it might look like that Cain has won, that the offspring of Cain will rule as they killed Abel, and that their children, his children descended further and further into sin, well, we see in these last two verses that God has other plans for mankind. That there is hope in this bleak world. And we'll see that as we turn to our final point as we close and see the dependent call of the offspring of Seth. And in verse 25, we're taken back to Adam and Eve, where it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Eve's totally trusting in God, as she sees the, his goodness in appointing for her another son to replace faithful Abel. Seth, although he's born into a world of progress and potential, but it's also a world of murder and violence. But we can have hope in the line of Seth as the one born to replace Abel. And Seth is a fitting replacement for Abel because he continues in Abel's mold. Verse 26, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. In the bleakest of situations, where your uncle has murdered his brother and where your cousin sings threatening ballads about how he killed a man and where sin is running rampant to every turn, the offspring of Seth see that they cannot place their hope in human progress. So instead, will they call on the name of the Lord? They realize that only the creator God who made this world perfect, can put right what has been put so horribly wrong. 
And so too for today. In the face of broken relationships and the ongoing enmity we see, well, what are we to do? Call on the name of the Lord, to trust him. And in the face of the pain of toil and labor, well, we're not to put hope in the progress of this world to solve those problems, but we simply need to call on the name of the Lord. Because whilst the fall was an awful moment, for Israel then, and for us today, who only know of a broken world, well, actually, in it we can find great encouragement. Because Genesis 1-4 has clearly shown us that it's not as if God kind of was half-hearted, he wasn't really able to make a good world, that he kind of tried and failed. Well, no, we've seen he made a great one, a perfect world. And therefore, given that it's gone wrong, he's the only one we can trust to put it right again. And whilst Genesis 1-4 doesn't fully explain how God will eventually fix the problem, it did introduce us to Seth and to Enosh, people who are willing to put their trust in God. Despite not knowing the solution, they cried out to the one they knew who it would have to come from. They cried out to the Lord. And luckily for us, they're not just the model of how we're to live, but they're also the line through whom the solution will come. For Genesis will go on to show us that through Seth comes Noah, and through Noah comes Abraham, and through Abraham comes the Lord Jesus. The one who will resist the temptation of Satan, the one who will rule over sin, crouching behind the door, the one who will crush the serpent, even as he tastes death, so that we might taste paradise. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24 says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Whereas Abel's blood had called out from the ground, condemning Cain, asking for condemnation, while Christ's blood brings us salvation. It brings us hope that there is more than this broken world, and that when we call on the name of the Lord, we can truly be saved. Whilst Genesis 1-4 to have only hinted at the solution, they've introduced us to the majestic creator of the entire universe, who is also our saviour who just back, like he did in Genesis 3, back in the garden, is calling out to us, where are you? But will we call back? Will we call on the name of the Lord and be saved? What Seth and Enosh would have given to know what we know now. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, to remember all that Jesus did for us on the cross, to remind ourselves of the body and blood which was killed so that broken sinners living in a broken world might be put right. So that whilst we might live in paradise left behind, we can one day see paradise regained forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We thank you that despite our sinfulness, 
you sent the Lord Jesus so that we might know you. We thank you that Genesis 4 is not the end of the story, but that we can call on your name and we can have hope in a broken world. We pray you'd help us to trust you and not ourselves to bring us back to know you. Amen.